Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about the legal tender cases and what it is that libertarians get wrong about the founders and fiat currency. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockie and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be discussing legal theory and moral philosophy as it relates to current events surrounding law, politics, and culture. And just real quick for you guys, uh, if you like what I do here on the show and you want to support the show, uh, there's a couple of ways you can do that. If you want to put your financial faith behind us, uh, you can go to Venmo, uh, you can go to PayPal. The best way to do it is to go to Patreon and sign up to become a patron there because there's a bunch of extra little goodies and things that you get with that. Uh, for example, I'm going to be uh, interviewing Scott Horton tomorrow. We finally rescheduled that. Uh, and if you have any questions that you would like me to uh, put to Scott, you can go and sign up to be a patron. And I have a message board set up for questions uh, that I will be uh, sort of prioritizing to ask him uh, when we talk tomorrow. So uh, if you guys are, are able to put your support behind us, if you can, that's great. Uh, if you know, if not, I'm just glad you're here listening anyway. So uh, enough uh, whoring myself out here. Let's just get to the topic for today because I have a lot to cover. So to start out here, kind of set the scene for you guys, I guess, uh, in the latter half of the 19th century, the Supreme Court decided a series of cases that upheld the power of Congress to issue paper money and make it legal tender for all debt. Although the last of these cases was decided in 1884, several constituencies have kept the issue decided in those cases alive. And one of these constituencies is a small but vocal group that has never been reconciled to the idea of American paper currency. They maintain that the Constitution did not authorize paper money and that the United States, as a matter of constitutional fidelity and sound policy, should return to a monetary regime centered on the coinage of precious metal. Now, while the U.S. Constitution prohibits these states from issuing paper currency by barring them from emitting bills of credit, it is perfectly silent on whether the federal government may issue such bills. Now, distrusting paper money, the Constitutional Convention deliberately did strike a provision from the initial draft of the U.S. Constitution that empowered the federal government to emit bills of credit. Yet, the conclusion that the legal tender cases uh, conflict with an originalist view of the Constitution really rests on fairly slender foundation. And indeed, uh, some might say, and I would say, that uh, for those uh, that there are those who have correctly argued for the uh, contrary conclusion. And so this episode today is an effort to investigate this question more thoroughly. The method of originalist analysis employed in this article, uh, or in this episode, I should say, uh, is the same that lawyers in the founding generation would have used. Uh, you could call it, you could call it maybe 
original understanding originalism. This is what I talked about uh, yesterday on the episode that I did about uh, the Tenth Amendment Center and uh, paper money. And this is in opposition to either original public meaning or original intent uh, in that uh, what I'm talking about here today, this original understanding method, uh, is where one uh, where the interpreter seeks out and applies first and foremost the understanding of the ratification debates and the ratification conventions themselves and defines constitutional language from those uh, records to the extent that an understanding is recoverable from them. Now, where it is not recoverable, then one can go to original public meaning of the words. So note that the understanding sought is that of the ratifiers than the drafters. For it was the ratifiers who transformed the Constitution from a proposal into basic law, and under the founding founding era method of originalism, one may proceed either by first identifying the ratifier's understanding and then using public meaning as a gap filler, or by first identifying the public meaning and then seeking evidence that the ratifiers might have had a different or specialized understanding. Uh, I think for the purposes of this episode, uh, for structure and convenience, I think that uh, I will be taking the latter approach. I think that will make more sense as we go along here. Uh, but under either approach, the, the key is you should reach the same result. Now, uh, this episode will essentially conclude uh, that the holdings of the legal tender cases were consistent with an original understanding, and therefore, although it is true that some of the Supreme Court's reasoning in the legal tender cases was superfluous, that there uh, and some some was wrong, that the end result was just inarguably correct. So let's start by summarizing earlier arguments. Now, the originalist arguments previously made on both sides of the paper money issue are fairly straightforward. There are those who contend that the text of the Constitution does not authorize paper currency, and they read the term coin in the coinage clause as denoting only tokens made of metal. Hence, any power to issue paper money must be deduced from the necessary and proper clause, they say. However, the argument goes, the necessary and proper clause's authority is limited to incidental powers. Uh, to uh, Essentially, this means to subordinate to the main powers. So that would, these are things that they would be able to do even in the absence of the necessary and proper clause, essentially. Now, the capacity to issue legal tender paper is not incidental to any enumerated power, uh, so the argument goes here, but is an independent, unconnected power. So those who contend that there was no federal power to emit paper money further observe that in McCulloch v. Maryland, Chief Justice Marshall said that to be incidental, a power must be consistent with the spirit of the Constitution. But the spirit of the Constitution, the opponents of paper currency will say, is hostile to paper currency, and their evidence will include three main points. First, the instrument's ban on state emissions of bills of credit and on certain related actions. Second, on the Fifth Amendment's due process and takings clause, both designated to prevent expropriation of this kind uh, that is historically associated with paper money. And third, 
the founder's general dislike of paper money. Now, commentators uh, of the anti-paper money school will also cite the ratification era statements by Luther Martin, who was a delegate from Maryland, an anti-federalist who argued that the Constitution gave Congress no power to issue paper money. On the other hand, there are those who argue that the original Constitution authorized paper currency and observe that the Constitution's specific bans on bills of credit and tender laws apply only to the state and therefore, as they say, expressio unius est exclusio alteris. And that is anything that isn't included must be considered to be excluded. Now, those prohibitions do not apply to the federal government. And additionally, some of the federal convention delegates who voted to remove the express bill of credit power did so because they believed that the government would still be able to issue paper money without it. Defenders of paper currency add further that the Fifth Amendment is a bar only to direct takings, not to the exercise of a regulatory authority and incidentally reduces property value. Now, perhaps surprisingly, paper money advocates generally concede that the coinage clause authorizes only metallic tokens. They will maintain, however, that the authority incidental to various express federal powers are insufficient to permit emissions of paper. Now, to support this argument, they adopt definitions of incidental that embrace all actions facilitating express power or linked to express powers in the aggregate. Now, some paper money advocates have argued that the federal government has authority to issue legal tender uh, paper money even in the absence of constitutional enumeration, simply because the authority to emit paper money is inherent to national sovereignty. So, assessing those prior arguments, most of the foregoing arguments, uh, as, as far as I am concerned, are unsatisfying. One might have expected an inquiry into whether the phrase to coin money encompass paper for an affirmative answer, would have rendered the implied powers argument uh, on both sides unnecessary. But neither side has made such an inquiry, and both have assumed that the phrase to coin money was limited to making metallic coins. They have so assumed, even though the Constitution's wording and structure should have encouraged investigation. Now, as I have explained below, and I will be going on to explain throughout this episode, uh, that ascribing a purely metallic meaning to coin creates several textual difficulties. Similarly, uh, uninvestigated has been whether the phrase to regulate the value was intended to grant Congress authority to confer legal tender status. Now, on the other hand, the opponents of paper money cite no decisive evidence that the founders understood the takings clause to extend beyond direct takings. Instead, they retroactively insert the doctrine of substantive due process into the founding era, even though that doctrine was not invented until after the Dred Scott case. This was almost a century later. And it was not actually ever applied until even later, still in the late uh, 19th century. Now, they also cite Chief Justice Marshall's reference to the spirit of the Constitution, but appear to be unaware of what Marshall actually meant when he said that. 
in Marshall's time, the spirit of a document was a synonym for the intent of the makers. In the constitutional context, the spirit of the understanding should be with the ratifiers. However, opponents of paper money, very much like their adversaries, have investigated only the intent of the drafters with inconclusive results. They have sought almost nothing of the view of the ratifiers, and all this explains why there is this need for a fresh look at the evidence. So we would I take a minute here and dip back into a bit of English law and practice. In the 18th century, Anglo-American law and practice, uh, when the term commerce was used in an economic sense, it encompassed the buying and selling of goods and several other associated activities such as navigation. Uh, this is something that I've talked about a lot in other episodes such as uh, my episode about Gibbons versus Ogden, where this was a big argument over whether uh, commerce included navigation. They included, concluded that it did. Um, but And then also uh, a number of other things such as uh, marine insurance, commercial paper, and banking. Now, the framers all lived the first part of their lives under laws that identified the crown as the arbiter of commerce within Great Britain. Now, the royal prerogative was the primary source of commercial regulation, and although in practice Parliament enjoyed a significant role as well, in the words of the great English jurist William Blackstone, With us in England, the king's prerogative so far as it relates to mere domestic commerce will fall principally under the following articles. First, the establishment of public marts or places of buying and selling such as markets and fairs with the tolls there unto belonging. Second, the regulation of weights and measures. Third, as money is the medium of commerce, it is the king's prerogative as the arbiter of domestic commerce to give it authority or make it current, that is, to declare it to be legal tender. Now, the king may also at any time decry or cry down any coin of the kingdom and make it no longer current. Now, Blackstone's summation is supported by the leading judicial decision in the English common law on the subject. Now, this is a case known as the case of mixed money. Now, the particulars of this case really aren't too crucial, though they are interesting, and I would encourage people to go and read it for themselves. I am going to skip to the relevant ruling here today. First, it declared that Every country needed a common standard of money for purposes of exchange. And citing civil law scholar Jean Baudin, the council characterized money as a public measure for, uh, they cited money as a public measure for, quote, money is the proper medium and measure of the exchange of things, end quote. Now, implicit in this characterization was the idea that the power over money was closely related to the weights and measures power. A relationship that was acknowledged as uncontroversial fact in the 18th century American writings. Next, the council ruled uh, that it was the crown's exclusive prerogative to make or coin money and that it appertained to the king only to put value upon coin 
and to make the price of the quantity uh, and to put a print on it, which being done, the coin is then current. Now, the counselor further asserted that, quote, there, were, uh, there should be one faith, weight, measure, and money, end quote. It was custom for the crown to exercise this power by royal proclamation, although, the council added, Parliament sometimes adopted acts in aid of royal authority. And thirdly, the Privy Council ruled that the king, by his prerogative, may make money of what matter and form he pleased and establish the standard of it, so may he charge his money in substance and impression and enhance or debase the value of it or entirely decry and annul it, and that he could set the value of money at his own discretion without the consent of others in the council's view, the power to strike coin and regulate its value went together as a matter of law. In other words, the crown had full rights to claim uh, signerage, the profit generated from pegging the currency as a legal tender. Now, the nature of a tender act is not more or less than establishing by law the standard value of money and has the same use with respect to the currency that the legal standard pound, bushel, yard, or gallon has to these goods, the quantities of which are usually ascertained by those weights and measures value greater than some of the minting and material costs. The council added that the power of the sovereign to alter the form of money included the power to use material he or she chose. The sovereign could even fabricate money out of leather if he or she so pleased. And as I mentioned yesterday in my episode, indeed, later that century, it did happen when the uh, later, later, later deposed King James II, uh, then in possession of Ireland, actually did coin leather money. Now, to summarize, the royal prerogative included authority to regulate British domestic commerce and commercial authority, including governance of weights and measures of which the medium of payment was considered one branch. The royal power over the medium of payment included the authority to strike coin and of denomination and from any material, and to regulate the value of that coin and of foreign money. Regulating the value of money encompassed designating what items were legal tender and at what rates and for what debts they had to be accepted. And that is really the heart of the mixed money case. Next, we're going to look at kinds of American paper money. Now, legal writers as opposed to economic historians, seem almost universally to have made the error of assuming that the constitutional phrase bills of credit was a mere synonym for paper money. In fact, bills of credit constituted only the most important of several categories of American paper currency. The name of this kind of currency probably was inspired by private bills of credit, which were instruments executed by an issuer to a potential creditor informing the potential creditor that if he extended credit to an identified potential debtor, often the issuer's agent, and 
delivered to the issuer the debtor's written acknowledgement of the debt, then the issuer would hold the potential creditor harmless. Now, a paper money bill of credit was analogous to its private counterpart in that the issuing government gave the instrument to one of its creditors to assure the creditor that if he extended credit to his fellow citizens as potential debtors, then he, the creditor, would be harmless. The government promised to discharge this obligation by future payment or by accepting the bill in lieu of future taxes and other fees. The paper money bill of credit, however, differed from a private party analog in that the public bill was intended to circulate as currency, and the bearer presented the same document rather than a separate document executed by the debtor. When seeking payment, at, and this is how a colony labeled its currency did not necessarily control whether that currency was actually a bill of credit. The Treasury notes issued by Connecticut and Massachusetts uh, after the mid-century were not legal tender, but they were bills of credit in all but name. Some forms of paper money, on the other hand, were clearly not bills of credit. The Virginia and Maryland tobacco notes, uh, although generally serving as legal tender, were classic warehouse receipts. In contrast, the uh, bills issued by a land bank uh, an institution that I will describe below uh, in just a second, that is to say, uh, were not actually bills of credit. Bills of credit represented the government's indebtedness to its citizens. So land bank bills represented citizens' indebtedness to the government. Both bills of credit and other forms of paper money could be secured or unsecured. For instance, Maryland's uh, indented bills of 1733 were collateralized by stock in the Bank of England. Other instruments were backed by commodities, such as lumber, uh, or uh, a less tangible form of security, uh, if it was security uh, that was first backed by a Massachusetts Bill of Credit. Now, those bills entitled the bearer to remit them for payments due at the colonial treasury, most likely for tax payments. Each bill specified its denomination and proclaimed that it shall be in value equal to money and shall be accordingly accepted by the treasurer in all public payments and for any stock at any time in the treasury. Most other early colonial issues, especially those in New England, followed the same general formula. If the issuer were legal tender, the phrase and all others might, have, might be inserted on the bill after the word treasurer. Now, most colonies also experimented with what were known as, as land banks or loan-off systems. This was one in which a landowner granted the government a real estate mortgage as collateral in exchange received a loan of government paper currency. Thus, the loan office turned illiquid real estate assets into, as Benjamin Franklin wrote about it, coined land. And land banks sometimes issued uh, currency in exchange for inadequate or improper collateral, thereby contributing to inflation of paper money. 
Now, the term of repayment of paper money also varied. An emission might promise payment in specie or in some other asset on demand, or it might provide for remittance after a date fixed or variable or possibly tied to a future tax receipt. Now, some currency bore interest and some did not. Currency, whether or not in the forms of bills of credit, might or might not be legal tender. Some was pure fiat money. Like the modern Federal Reserve note, promising nothing but stating on its face merely that it was lawful money and shall pass current at a denominational amount. All right, next talking about the Confederation era. Now, Congress approved the Articles of Confederation in 1777, although they did not become effective until the 13th state, which was Maryland, ratified them in 1781. Now, the Articles gave Congress the sole and exclusive right and power of regulating the alloy and value of coin struck by their own authority or by that of the respective states and fixing the standards of weights and measures throughout the United States. Congress also received authority to emit bills on credit of the United States. And the Confederation Congress declined to exercise this power, but during the period the Articles were in effect, which was from March 1st of 1781 until January, or excuse me, not January, June, June 21st of 1788, 10 of the states did in fact emit paper money. So why was a coinage clause necessary? That is a good question. Now, extant comments by James Wilson and James Madison suggest that they believe that the states were incompetent to handle the coinage power and that it should be lodged in the federal government. Now, this uh, distinction is crucial to understand. After all, the Constitutional Coinage Clause appears in Section 10, and this is something we went over in great detail yesterday. Section 10 applies only to the several states, not to the federal government. Besides, Section 10 clearly starts with the phrase, quote, no state shall, end quote. Um, we need to understand that Section 9 is a list of general prohibitions that are taken to apply directly to the federal government, but not to the several states. Now, this is why, uh, this is something we talked about yesterday as well, but this is why sections 9 and 10 feature identical prohibitions. For example, both sections prohibit uh, things such as a passage of bills of attainder or ex post facto laws. But the prohibitions against bills of credit and the important coinage clause appear only in Section 10. They are nowhere found in the federal prohibitions under Section 9. Now, assuming that delegates to the Constitutional Convention generally held this belief, one might ask why convention delegates enumerated a specific coinage power when, by common understanding, congressional authority over commerce would include authority over measures and money as well. The Articles of Confederation included express powers over measures and money, but only because the Articles granted Congress no general power over commerce. One possibility is that the delegates chose to include a specific coinage power because the Congressional Commerce powers 
did not extend to some types of commerce. Excluded was commerce that was neither foreign nor interstate, nor with the Indian tribes, nor necessary and proper to regulate in pursuit of an enumerated power. Moreover, some activities benefiting from standard measurements, such as manufacturing and agriculture, were not commerce. At all, in the contemporaneous sense of the word, uh, this includes a separate power to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. This enabled Congress to set the measurement standards for all transactions within the United States. During the Constitutional Convention, there was an interesting, uh, actually, I think it was downright fascinating, rich debate over the exact language of the clauses in Sections 9 and 10 that discussed bills of credit, paper money, and coinage. Because it is uh, both fascinating, and I do not want to be uh, accused of doing anything by half measures, I will be doing a follow-up video here in the next couple days about that, where I will be demonstrating to really everyone's satisfaction that when discussing those aspects of the convention, uh, the presentation of those sections by the Committee of Style and the spirited debate over their exact language that was initially used, debated, and changed to eventually give us the Constitution as it was ratified, uh, and that a thorough examination of that debate will show that the conclusion reached uh, that there are entirely consistent with the conclusions uh, that I will be coming to in this video with the legal tender cases. But, uh, like I said, uh, the 10th Amendment Center knows that the ratification debates, uh, and this, again, this is from the point I kept stressing yesterday over and over again, so, um, so they know that the ratification debates are always the place to first be consulted when you're looking for meaning in the Constitution. So while the federal convention debates are interesting and in their own ways useful and even sometimes necessary, uh, they leave us wanting for meaning of specificity. Let's look at the original public meaning of the coinage clause. Now, those who have tried to wring an interpretation of the coinage clause from the records of the federal convention may have been squeezing the wrong fruit. Founding generation lawyers, like most originalists today, understand that in seeking a document's meaning, the relevant inquiry is, into the, is not into the intent of the makers, but the ratifiers, not the drafters. Now. It was the ratifiers who converted this mere proposal into a legal reality. Therefore, the real value of the debate at the federal convention lies in the light they cast on the meaning to the ratifiers. Now, this part that we're going to be covering here next uh, will examine the prevailing meaning of the expression to regulate the value and to coin money. Now, at the time, those phrases would have been presented to the ratifying public. So, the clear and original meaning and understanding of the phrase regulate the value. The historical record leaves little doubt about the public meaning of the phrase regulate the value. 
That phrase was coupled with the words to coin money in accordance with the common law rule that one who strikes money also has the power to set his value. Now, as I have discussed already here, uh, setting the value of money encompassing determinations of which domestic and foreign currency would be legal tender and to what extent it would be legal tender. The government was entitled to any signage, and according to uh, uh, Polita Webster of Philadelphia, it reflected a common understanding when, in 1780, he wrote, The nature of the Tender Act is no more or less than establishing, by law, the standard value of money, and has the same use with respect to the currency. And that the legal standard pound, bushel, yard, or gallon has to these goods, the quantities of which are usually ascertained by those weights and measures. Not only is this understanding clear, but it makes sense as a textual matter. Because, after all, it is only by deciding issues of legal tender that you could determine questions of, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, it was only in deciding issues of legal tender that Congress could fully regulate the value of money. So, if Congress were denied the power to determine questions of legal tender, then it would be missing an important tool that government traditionally employed for monetary regulation. The historical record does not seem to contain anything that suggests the ratifiers' understanding of the phrase regulate the value of money differed from the public meaning at the time. Therefore, a determination of the original intent of the coinage clause may proceed to more difficult matters, such as the ambiguous meaning, the ambiguous original public meaning specifically of the term coin. Now, the more common meaning of coin in the 18th century as now referred to metallic tokens. Madison used the word this way in The Federalist when he wrote that, quote, the same reasons which show the necessity of denying the states the power of regulating coin prove with equal force that they ought not to be at liberty to substitute a paper medium in the place of coin. Nonetheless, the possible definitions of coin recognized even in monetarist Britain were payment of any kind and all manner of several stamps and species in any nation. And the verb to coin could mean to make or forge anything. Uh, and this is something that you will see uh, still commonly used today when we use a phrase such as, to, you know, to coin a phrase. So, pursuant to this usage, paper money can be coined. Now, to the modern speaker of English, the metallic meaning seems the more natural one. But this was much less so in the 18th century. When speaking of matters other than financial practices of the British government, 18th century English speakers, uh, such as people like uh, Shakespeare, uh, would often use both the noun and the verb form of coin in much broader ways. Now, this was not only of uh, rogues like his character Falstaff, where he used the coin 
quite use the term quite a bit, but of uh, quiet, respectable, able, and honest people, as he put it. For example, in his celebrated encyclopedia, uh, Ephraim Chambers wrote, quote, The Hollanders we knew coined great quantities of pasteboard in the year of, of 1574. Now, this formulation was later adopted, almost word for word, into the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, what could be said of pasteboard and the Dutch could also be said of paper. In 1700, and uh, the anonymous author of a pamphlet on trade reflected on how other nations might compete with the English woolen trade by coining paper money. In 1720, economist John Law proposed coining notes of one pound and otherwise coining paper money. Now, a few years later, uh, Daniel Defoe related how tradesmen coined bills payable from one to another when the American colonies declared that they declared their independence. Uh, John Shaber attacked them for coining paper money. The debate of the Irish Parliament of 1784 uh, includes a reference into uh, the coining of paper money. And Thomas Paine uh, argued that of all the various sorts of base coin, paper money is the basis. Now, when Benjamin Franklin urged issuance of Pennsylvania's paper currency secured by land, he characterized it by calling it coined land. In 1742 case uh, that is known as uh, Charitable Corporation v. Sutton in common law, Chancellor Hardwick referred to notes coined by private parties and to coining notes. So these are not isolated examples, and although not uh, everyone proved, uh, approved of applying the word coin to non-metallic media, the existence of a recorded protest testifies that the usage was common enough. Now, a potential ratifiers examining the proposed constitution would have been encouraged by the context to read the document's use of coin in the broader manner. In persuading, uh, excuse me, in perusing the coinage clause, the text to read the document's use of coin in this broader manner, uh, the reader would have seen the words, quote, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, end quote, as applying to metallic definitions of coin, would result in Congress having the power to issue metal tokens, but no other kind of money, and to regulate the value of foreign metal tokens, but not of any other foreign currency. It seems very unlikely, however, that the founding generation would have wished to deny Congress the power to coin money's current among us. Now, buttressing this inference is analogous language in the Articles of Confederation granting Congress, quote, the sole and exclusive right and power of regulating the alloy and value of coins struck by authority of the respective states. Because at the time the articles were adopted, the states had issued primary paper money rather than metallic coins. 
such language would not have been of much consequence unless the term coin was read to include paper money. The word coin also appears in other clauses of Article 1, Section 8, giving Congress authority to, quote, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, end quote. The provision does not seem to suggest a particular meaning of coin because whether or not paper money is included in the meaning, the United States was certainly likely to issue securities, such as bonds distinct from money. Therefore, there are no relevant references to be drawn from the presence of coin in this provision. There is, however, yet another use of coin in the Constitution's text. This is, of course, what we talked about at great length yesterday, Article 1, Section 10, which provides that no state shall coin money, emit bills of credits, make anything but gold or silver coin a tender in payment of debts, pass any ex post facto law or law impairing the obligations of contract. Now, one could argue that the separate listing of coin money and emit bills of credit suggests that coin money referred only to metal, while bills of credit refers to paper. But bills of credit were only one kind of paper money. And in any event, the items on this list of prohibitions overlap each other significantly. The printing of legal tender bills of credit, for example, would have been violated at least three and perhaps four separate prescriptions in that very list. So a, ratific a ratification era reader might well have noted that the use of coin was modified by the adjectives gold and silver while the word was used without modification in the coinage clause. And as Chief Justice Marshall pointed out, in an analogous situation, the absence of modifiers suggests a wider meaning. Coin in the coinage clause should therefore include coins made of substances other than gold and silver. Now, it is unreasonable to contend that coins could be made only of base metals, but not of other kinds of materials such as paper. Because determined politicians can debase money by using cheap metal just as easily as using anything else. Consider the possibility of a $1,000 tin coin. So the word coin does not appear further in the Constitution, but the word money does. Now, a purely metalist reading of money has implications for federal financial operations that the founders certainly could not have possibly intended. Uh, now, people such as uh, Attorney General Ackerman argued in the legal tender cases that no appropriation of money to the raising and supporting of armies shall be for a longer term than two years. This provision would certainly be violated by an appropriation of treasury notes to support the army for three years. No money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by the law, would mean that treasury notes could not be drawn from the treasury without such appropriations. Yet, the regular statement of the receipts and expenditures of all public money while which the same section requires to be published from time to time would be incomplete if treasury notes were simply left out. Now, 
Ackerman might have added that in such a world when the federal government exercises power to borrow money, it could receive from lenders only metal. But as previously shown, one cannot prove that the drafters of the Constitution specifically intended coin to have a broader meaning because the intents appear to have varied and not all of their views are recoverable, yet the ratifiers could easily have understood the word in a broad way. The ratification records should now be evaluated to determine the direct evidence of their understanding, and that is what we are going to do next. Next, we are going to look at how the ratifiers, the ratifiers chose a meaning for coin. The ratification records contain substantial discussion of the questions whether the Constitution would permit the federal government to emit paper currency, just as the ratifiers had to select a meaning for the uncertain constitutional phrase ex post facto law. So, too, did they have to determine a meaning for coin? The evidence suggests that the meaning the ratifiers chose was broad enough to include the power to coin paper. The ratification records include many general comments that the Constitution would put an end to paper money, but these comments should be taken, however, as reflecting the Constitution's ban on state emissions of credit only, not any putative federal ban. One general reason for this is that the prior history of paper money had been almost exclusively a history of emissions by colonies and states. Colonies and states had been emitting paper currency almost continually for nearly a century, and during the ratification debates, most of these states had returned to their traditional practices. Congressional emissions from 1775 to 1780 represented the only exception, and by the time of the ratification debates, Congress had determined that all of its issues uh, had determined all of its issues and had no plans to resume them. Thus, from the standpoint of the participants in the ratification debates, a constitution that banned state emissions would likely stop all emissions for the foreseeable future. Now, when debate participants spoke less generally and focused specifically on the constitution's provision pertaining to paper money, almost everyone emphasized that the prohibition on bills of credit applied to the states. Federalists cited prior state actions that justified the ban. When they mentioned continental money at all, they tended to be much more tolerant when ascribing congressional difficulties to the exigencies of the revolution. Now, this was, they were otherwise also um, seemingly justifying of congressional conduct. State issues of legal tender paper, on the other hand, were uh, as attacked both as immoral efforts to redistribute wealth from some constituencies to others and as a source of bad international and interstate relationships. So participants took particular offense to the actions of Rhode Island, which, among other measures, had structured the tender provisions of its Paper Money Act to benefit in-state debtors at the expense of out-of-state creditors. So anti-federalist objections to the Constitution's provisions on paper money focus almost entirely on the effect of those provisions on the state. Such as at the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, anti-federalists argued that the bans could cause uh, hardship because 
it might be construed to invalidate North Carolina bills of credit that were already in circulation. In Virginia, anti-federalists argued that in conjunction with the prohibition on state ex post facto laws, the prescription of state bills of credit might require Virginia taxpayers to repay old Dominion Revolutionary War debts, as they put it, quote, shilling for shilling, instead of allowing the state government to issue paper to scale down the payment. Now, much of the ratification debate was devoted to arguments over what the particular constitutional clauses would mean in practice. Only one significant figure argued specifically that the Constitution's monetary provisions would prohibit the federal government from emitting paper money. That one person was Luther Martin, the Maryland Attorney General and an Anti-Federalist who, at the Philadelphia Convention, had been on the losing side of the vote to remove the express reference to federal bills of credit. Martin had been, uh, in other words, one of the minority at the convention who believed both that the federal government should have the power to issue bills of credit and that deleting the language would delete the power. Few seem to have accepted his argument. Even a satirist pretending to be Martin could not bring himself to repeat Martin's assertion that the federal government was barred from issuing bills of credit. Instead, the satirist recharacterized Martin's argument, stating that the framers of the Constitution have inserted a clause prohibiting paper money emissions and legal tenders in any of the states. Now, all of Martin's anti-federalist allies who addressed the issue interpreted the Constitution as permitting the central government to issue paper money. At the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, William Finley, responding to Federalist attacks on bills of credit, pointed out that the Constitution contained no guard against Congress making paper money. Other anti-Federalists used the purported congressional power to issue bills of credit as a reason to oppose the Constitution. The pseudonymous uh, deliberator wrote, quote, Though I believe it is not generally so understood and certain it is that Congress may emit paper money and even make it legal tender throughout the United States. And what is still worse, may, after it shall have depreciated in the hands of the people, call it in by taxes at any rate of depreciation compared with old gold and silver, which you may think proper. For, though no state can emit bills of credit, or pass any law impairing the obligation of contract, yet the Congress themselves are under no constitutional restraints on these points. Now, other anti-federalists taking the same tack included John Winthrop of Massachusetts, uh, DeWitt Clinton of New York, uh, and an anonymous uh, author who went by the pseudonym Farmer in Pennsylvania. The Federalists who addressed the issue also said that Congress would enjoy the power to issue paper money, however ill-advised some thought the exercise of that power might be. At the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, Federalist Jasper Yates essentially conceded Finley's point, agreeing that Congress alone would be able to exercise powers such as emitting bills of credit. Now, a writer using the pseudonym A Native of Virginia argued that the ban on state emissions was justified because 
an exercise of these rights would materially interfere with the exercise of the like by Congress. And in South Carolina, Federalists repeatedly represented that Congress would have the power to issue paper money. One such Federalist was the distinguished physician, historian, and the sometimes politician David Ramsey, writing uh, under the pseudonym Civis. And according to Ramsey, under the Constitution, the states cannot emit money. This is not intended to prevent the emission of paper money, but only of state paper money. Is not this an advantage? To have 13 paper currencies in 13 states is embarrassing to commerce. And eminently so to travelers. In the session of the South Carolina legislature that called the state ratifying convention, Robert Barnwell responded to a defense of state emissions by uh, averring that it was not the state, but the continental money that brought about the favorable termination of the war. If to strike off a paper medium becomes necessary, Congress by the Constitution shall have that right and may exercise it when they think proper. And at South Carolina's ratifying conventions, Charles Pinckney, who had been a prominent delegate at the federal convention, observed that, quote, besides, if paper should become necessary, the general government still possesses the power of emitting it, and continental paper, well-funded, must ever answer like purposes better than state paper. And participants in the ratification debates cited uh, really four reasons why the Constitution should allow federal paper money but prohibit state emissions. First, the Articles of Confederation had granted Congress exclusive authority over foreign relations, but state issues of paper money had impeded uh, Congress's exercise of that authority. Second, removing the power of issuing paper money from the state governments, particularly from Rhode Island's government, would remove a source of discord and incipient trade wars among various states. Now, his, uh, historian uh, Mary M. Schweitzer uh, has concluded that this was the most important factor leading to the constitutional ban on state issues. And third, state monetary uniformity offered solid advantages for travelers, credit, and commerce. Before the Constitution, each state had issued its own currency, and the nominal values of those currencies varied sharply from state to state. And Dave Ramsey looked forward to the day when this would change. How extremely useful and advantageous, he said, must this restraint be to those states which mean to be honest and not to defraud their neighbors. Henceforth, the citizens of the state may trade with each other without fear of tender laws or laws impairing the nature of contracts. Now, the citizens of South Carolina will then be able to trade with those of Rhode Island, North Carolina, and Georgia and be sure of receiving the value of his commodities. And the fourth reason they gave Many believed that the wider scope of the federal government would reduce the possibility that paper money would be issued needlessly and for improper purposes. A later anecdote suggests how even strident opponents of paper money accepted the federal uh, power to issue it. For example, in 1819, 
John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson on the subject of the recent American issues of paper money, uh, quoting Charles Francois Dupre, uh, that debasing the coinage is to steal. A theft of greater magnitude and still more ruinous is the making of paper. It is greater because in this money there is absolutely no real value. It is more ruinous because, by its gradual depreciation during all the time of its existence, it produces the effects which would be produced by an infinity of successive deteriorations of the coin. Now, Adams added that, quote, this is to say an infinity of successive felonious larcenies. If this is true, as I believe it is, he said, we Americans are the most thievish people to ever existed. We have been stealing from each other for a hundred and fifty years. And Jefferson responded, quote, the paper bubble is then burst. This is what you and I and every reasoning man seduced by no seduced by no obliquity of mind or interest have long foreseen. Yet, its disastrous effects are not the less for having been foreseen. However, vehementing they were on the inequity of paper money, though, these old founders refrained entirely from questioning its constitutionality. And I think that is the key point here. And in fact, that is, that is the point that I would make myself, is that I think paper money is a terrible uh, idea. I, I think the Federal Reserve is a terrible idea. Uh, I, I think that the inflation it brings is evil. I, I, I think that everything about it is bad. But I, I want to be clear here that there is a difference between something being, uh, you know, whether morally or financially good or bad, with it being constitutional. These do not have to be the same things. And that is the point that I'm really trying to get across to you guys in this video. You can be against the Fed and you can be against fiat money and still recognize that the Constitution permits it. The question is, once we understand that, where do we go from there? The better we understand the source of the problem, the better it, we will be equipped to try and bring some resolution to it. And this is why I'm bringing this all up is because I think that this is an issue where, uh, you know, us constitutional conservatives and libertarians uh, really need to be honest about, because I think if we uh, looked at this more honestly, and instead of trying to argue, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, conflate Article 1, Section 8 and Article 1, Section 10, as I talked about yesterday, and pretend that these are the same clause and kind of mix the two up and pretend that they say one thing when they don't and pretend that they exercise the same authority when they don't. I, this is just a, a complete, I mean, just a complete monetary circle jerk. We, you know, there's much, much better ways to deal with the problem of fiat money and central banking and paper currency. But I think part of it uh, involves being honest about this and getting out of this technicalitarian mindset that we seem to be mired in when it comes to economic policy, admit that fiat money is here, admit that it's constitutional, and then ask, okay, so what now? Anyways, my conclusion. 
According to the original understanding of the Constitution's coinage clause, granted to Congress the express power to coin money and bestow legal tender uh, quality upon that money, a similar power of lesser but still broad scope was also created by the Commerce Clause. For part of the 18th century definition of regulating commerce was the issuance and regulation of any medium of exchange. In addition, the money thus coined did not need to be metallic. Paper or any other material that Congress selected would suffice because to coin paper money was expressed. It requires no justification by the incidental powers doctrine of the necessary and proper clause. The Supreme Court's opinions of the legal tender cases did rely on the necessary and proper clause, and to that extent, their reasoning is at odds with the original understanding. However, the outcome of those cases, the Congress has the authority to issue legal tender paper money was, as I believe, undeniably correct as a matter of original understanding. So, originalists and others propounding interpretive theories, therefore, need not make any special accommodation for the holdings of the legal tender cases. Well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I do want to uh, thank you all so much for tuning in here. Uh, and I just uh, want to remind you guys to uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about this episode. Uh, you know, whether you have uh, praise or criticism, uh, adulation, insults, compliments, uh, you know, whatever, I'll take it all. Um, and I, if, if you feel like smashing the like button and you liked it, that's great. Uh, and I, you know, if you guys are able to uh, put some of your financial faith behind the show so I can spend as much time as possible putting these episodes out and doing this research and spreading this message, I'd really like to grow this channel and I would really like to start reaching a wider audience and your uh, your help could help me do that. So if you could do that, go check out Venmo, PayPal or Patreon. Uh, and then if you can't do that or if you if you can't afford to, or if you don't want to give your money, uh, what I would ask you do instead, uh, or or as well as to um, either one, uh, is to uh, just think of one person you know who you think might find this particular episode interesting or useful, uh, and just send it off to them, and, and just send them a note to to tell them to watch this and check it out. Um, and if you would just help me grow the channel that way, I would be truly, truly grateful for your help. So. Uh, anyways, until next time, this has been me, Lockean Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about the legal tender cases, and of course, as always, de lenda es Carthago.